You're listening to Along the Narrow Way, a podcast that walks you through books of the Bible verse by verse to help you dig into God's Word so you can walk along the narrow way with Christ more faithfully. Hosted by Pastor Will Russell and co-hosted by Jimmy Miller. Join them as they help us understand the Bible so we can walk more faithfully as disciples of Jesus. All right. Last week I was out at the revival. Jimmy took care of everything and uh, wrapped up 1 Peter for us. So this week we're going to jump right over, just turn the page over to the very next book of 2 Peter. We're just going to move right into uh, the second epistle that Peter wrote. He wrote it to the same group of Christians in uh, the region of Asia, the churches there and so forth. Uh, uh, he just, it's, it's kind of the part two. That's why it's called Second Peter. So we're going we're gonna to look at that today. So um, like always, let's start with a word of prayer. Jimmy, do you yes. want to start sure. prayer? Sure, sure thing. Dearest Heavenly Father, I just praise you for today. I thank you for allowing us to come together in the house of God. And I'm especially thankful for my church family who poured out the love this week over the loss of my mother. And I just praise you for that. And I pray right now that you'll guide us in your word by the power of your Holy Spirit, as you always do. And I pray we'll be faithful to rightly divide your word of truth. And I pray anybody who's lost that sees this message will know you, will come to know you by the drawing power of your Holy Spirit, as Savior, Lord, and God. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Yeah, this, uh, this is a tough night. Yes. We've we yes. got to acknowledge that with, with Miss Kathy passing. Um, and we were going to revamp the service tonight, and uh, I called Jimmy and talked to him this morning. And, and it, but Jimmy is pretty dedicated to the study of God's word. He yeah. he he was pretty insistent. Let's let's have our study. So we're going to have our study. That's what my mama would have wanted. So <laughs> that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. Um, so we're going to begin Second Peter. Now you'll remember First Peter. Uh, was written at a time um, when persecution, in in a great sense, was about to befall the church. Um, Nero uh, was about to blame the Christians for the burning of Rome. It hadn't happened yet at the time of First Peter, but uh, it was it was on the horizon. Peter obviously didn't know that, but God did, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, He led Peter to write First Peter. In that regard, to address those type things, and here we come to Second Peter, and most everyone would agree. Now, I'm not going to say everyone because you might find a Bible commentator out there to disagree, but most everyone would agree that Peter wrote this letter while he was in prison in Rome. Yes, he himself being swept up in the persecution that fell upon the church, he was uh, most likely in Rome in prison, and his death looming. In fact, we'll get there, not tonight, but we will get there in the study of this book, and you'll see he pretty well expected his execution was going to be carried out shortly. Oh, yes. Um, so he's writing this letter with the understanding that they're going to put me to death. It's just a matter of time until that sentence is carried out. So this is really kind of... Um, his last will and testament, his, his last word of encouragement and of admonition to his spiritual family. Um, 
He speaks almost as if uh, being a spiritual father, trying to share the, the last words he wants his children to hear and the things he wants them to remember. And so as you read Second Peter, you read it with, with that view, with that understanding. Um, as, we, as we study this book, we're going to see that Peter does encourage the believers to really cling to God's promises, um, to pursue this intricate and intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ, to grow spiritually, to be confident in the return of Christ. Um, he's going to spend some time speaking to them about resisting false teachers and the danger of false teachers. He's, he's kind of putting it all one last nutshell. Here's the things I really want you to hear. And that's Second Peter. That's, it's kind of his last statement. So tonight, what I'd really like us to do is just to kind of look at the introduction and set the tone for what Peter's going to discuss. Um, so let's, let's uh, just read the first little part of this and we'll discuss it. Second Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So let's just stop right there and just look at the introduction to this letter. Once again, understanding the, the context of Peter's life, being in prison, knowing its death sentence is going to be carried out shortly, knowing this is likely his last opportunity to speak truth to the Christians, to encourage them, to build them up, to direct them. So he begins, and he begins in the tradition that was very common in the first century. The letter writer, the author, would identify himself immediately. This is Simon Peter, he says. Simon Peter. Some of your versions will say Simeon. Um, Simon's Greek, Simeon's Hebrew, same name though. So if there's a variance there in your text, mine says Simon Peter. Uh, some of the other versions say Simeon. Um, uh, I know uh, ESV because that's my other version I like to read. I know ESV says Simeon. So, but it's just a difference between Greek and Hebrew, but it's the same name. So don't let that throw you off if, if your text is a tad different there. So he identifies himself. This is Simon Peter. Of course, we know Peter... Uh, the name given, assigned by Jesus. When Jesus said, look, you're, you're this rock, you're Peter. Um, sometimes we read Jimmy uh, Cephas. Cephas, yes. Well, once again, same name. Peter, Greek, Cephas, Aramaic, same name, just different language. So that's just a little tidbit. If you're reading about Peter, like, for example, uh, when Paul writes uh, to, to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians, and he mentions Cephas, yes. it's Peter. He just calls him by his Aramaic name. So he's identifying himself here. This is Simon Peter. Um, so we see here there, there should be no dispute over authorship. There have been scoffers throughout history who have tried to take 2 Peter and say, well, 
Someone wrote it with a, with a pseudonym, uh, uh, wrote it on his behalf, and that makes no sense. And if someone brings you that argument, let me know because we'll blow it out of the water pretty quickly. The reality is simply this. Simon Peter identified himself. He wrote this, and yes. he wrote it to the same group that he wrote before. And so we know who wrote the letter. He's identified himself, but it's worth looking at how he identifies himself. So let's look here just at verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle, of Jesus Christ. So in identifying himself, Simon Peter, he also identifies his position in regard to Jesus. Yes. So he says, I have this position, bond servant. Some versions are just going to say servant there. Um, if you have a very literal translation, it may use the word slave. The old school version will use yeah. the word slave. Really. And so uh, doulos in Greek means slave. That's the word used there. So he says, I'm a bond servant. It doesn't mean, well, I'm the hired servant that shows up to work sometimes. It's the word that was used for slave. Mm -hmm. A bond servant, one who is bonded to serve as a slave. Um, and so Peter here unashamedly acknowledges his position in Christ as one of this humble submission, this humble obedience to the service, that's what a bond servant does, serves. He's, one, he's identifying himself as, I own this position of a humble servant. I'm bound to obedience in my servitude to my master. And he names the master Jesus Christ. And so we see that in the most literal sense, what Peter is saying here, that believers are the slaves of God. That's right. Now, William Barclay, who is a Bible commentator, a theologian from way, 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 way back, he examined this, and he wrote down some thoughts, and uh, I summarized them because you didn't want to hear the book that he wrote on it. So let me just kind of give you a summary of, of his thoughts about this. He says the reference being made here as a bondservant is actually being the possession of. So Peter's literally saying, okay, you know who I am. I'm Simon Peter. I am the one who belongs to Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's a bot. He's been bought. He's been purchased. It's like that kind of slave word. That's, that's right. A purchased servant is, yes. what, he's, is what he is. Yes. And so he, and, and that was common in the ancient world. Remember the time frame in which he's writing. This would have been very common. In the ancient world, there would have been a master who would have purchased slaves. Um, they, they would have been his possession. In fact, in the first century, in this culture, a slave was, was seen as no different than any other tool that the master might have. If he had a wheelbarrow or a hammer or whatever out in the tool shed, the slave was considered the exact same thing. No, of no more value, of no more worth, just a tool to be used. That's all. And so when you look at the context of the culture, Peter's saying, look, in reality, we've been purchased with the blood of Christ. He has purchased us. We are his possession. We are tools that belong to him. We belong fully to the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Peter says, I'm writing this, and I'm writing it as from my position of bondservant, he's acknowledging I've been purchased by the blood of Christ, so my life is his. He owns me. We also see that 
the believer as this servant is at the master's disposal. That means the master uses the servant as the master pleases. That's right. The servant doesn't tell the master, here's how I will serve you. The master tells the servant, here's what you will do. So Peter here, in acknowledging this, is not only saying, Jesus owns me, but he also tells me, here's what you will do, and I'm obedient in that. That's what happened. In the first century, the master had full authority, full power. Any task, any place, in fact... It was very interesting, in the first century, if a master told a slave to do something that was against the Roman law, the slave was still bound to do it, Mm -hmm. he'd be punished more for not obeying the master than he would be for breaking the law. Wow. That's how much he was bound to serving his master. That's the context that Peter's applying to himself in serving Jesus. I am bound to serve him fully. I'm at his disposal to be used as he pleases, wherever he pleases, to accomplish what he pleases. We see that the believer is bound here to, to Christ, to his word. You know, the, the slave in the first century had to obey the master's word. What, the master's word is what he did. And that's the connotation here. I'm a bondservant. I'm a slave of Christ. What he says, I do. No objection. I abide in his word. So what we see here is we're bound. We're bound to the word of God. We're bound to complete obedience to the word of God. We, our position as servants of Christ, purchased by his blood, is a position of full obedience to the command of Christ. So that's the standard that Paul, or excuse me, Peter sets here. Something else that is inclined to be included with being a bondservant is this idea of a servant's continual servitude. Basically, a slave wasn't allotted free time. A slave was on duty 24 hours, seven days a week. If the master wanted you, you came. If the master told you to do it, you, you did it. You didn't say, well, listen, that's after work hours. You're going to have to pay me time and a half. Or, <laughs> well, it's Saturday. I just can't do it. The slave didn't say, well, you know, I got my kids signed up for this, that, and the other, you know, or my wife wants me to this and that. Or No, the slave was in continual servitude at all times. When the master said go, when the master said do, that had to happen. That's the precedent, or not really the precedent, but the uh, reference, inference inference that Peter's making, that Christians are bound to the service of Christ all the time. We're we're bound to faithfulness to his kingdom continually. We don't go off duty as a servant of Christ. We don't get an off day as a servant of Christ. Wherever we may be, whatever we may be doing, whatever we may be engaged in, we're there and we're a servant of Christ. So even in that moment, he may say, I need you to speak the truth to this person or I may need you to intervene uh, with love or grace or to help in some way to this person or I may need you to speak the gospel to that person or whatever it might be, wherever we are, we're bound to his servitude because it's continual service. You know, we, we don't get special holidays where we have downtime as a believer in Christ 
we should have this idea that as his servant, I am on continual call 24 hours a day, seven days a week to serve Christ, whatever he calls me to do, however he calls me to do it. And so as you look at this statement, Simon Peter, a bond servant, there's a lot of depth to that. There's a lot of depth to that. Now also keep in perspective who's making this statement. Simon Peter was unquestionably recognized as the leader of the apostles, the leader of the initial church movement there at Jerusalem. He was the guy. And yet, he has this attitude that says, but I'm nothing more than the slave of Christ. I, I do nothing more than just serve him the way he says serve. I do nothing more than go where he says go and accomplish what he says accomplish. So he identifies himself here as a bondservant. But then he continues. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle. Yes. And apostle of Jesus Christ. So this position of servant is applied through a calling of apostleship. We're all bound as servants of Christ, but we all do not have the same calling within the kingdom. Peter was bound to serve Christ just like every other apostle, John or Matthew or whoever, but he was also bound to serve Christ just like the guys who weren't apostles, Mark, Silas. They all had the same position in Christ, servants of Christ, but they had different callings within the kingdom. Peter was called to be an apostle of Christ. So his position of servant was applied to the calling of apostleship. That becomes important later on, especially probably in, as we move into chapter 2, because Peter is going to start addressing false teachers and false doctrines. And how can he? Who told him he could? Well, Jesus, when he called him to be an apostle. Right. So he's establishing right here at the beginning, not only am I the servant of Christ, but I've been called to be the apostle of Christ and I do have the authority to set you straight on some things. So that becomes important later on. Well, you can always see a false teacher because they'll look to be served instead of to serve. Mm. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, that's just the way it that's is. That's a good point. That's, uh, that's what uh, Paul talks about in, in Acts, is it 20? Because uh, he says some rise up as false teachers to draw others to follow themselves. Yes. That's, that's the connotation there, yes. to serve them. That's a good point, Jimmy. Okay, so Peter has his calling as apostle. In other words, he has been commissioned and sent forth by Christ himself. That's who the apostles were. The apostles were the ones who had been commissioned by Christ specifically himself, called forth as eyewitnesses to his resurrection, to, to his redemptive work, and then sent forth to speak with his authority as representatives of him, of the truth that he has been resurrected, of the truth that he is the Messiah. And so you see this group of apostles. Well, you have 11 coming into the New Testament church. Because remember, Judas Iscariot has already jumped ship, betrayed Jesus, and killed himself. 11 comes into the church. The church identifies two men who seem to be fit. They present the two men before God. God selects Matthias who becomes that other apostle to take Judas's place. So then you're back to 12. Then you have Paul who encounters 
the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus and has a conversation with Jesus directly and is called specifically by Jesus as another eyewitness because he witnessed Jesus personally. So now Peter becomes an apostle. Other than that, you have people called into the church, but as far as what Peter's talking about here with his authority as an apostle, it was very limited to a specific group, those called by Christ as eyewitnesses of Christ to speak the truth of Jesus because they were there, they saw it, and he called them directly. Now, later on as you move through church history, you get the shift in apostleship to really a lot of times be used to, to speak about the role of pastor and so forth a yes. lot of times. Yes. But in this context, we're talking about those men specifically called by Jesus as the witnesses of his resurrection and his ministry. So what that means is Peter spoke with authority, authority that the rest didn't have. You have someone like Apollos who would preach for Jesus and had a powerful ministry. The, the book of Acts gives proof to that. But he didn't speak with the authority of an apostle. No. He was a called preacher, but he didn't have the authority of a Peter because he wasn't there firsthand with Jesus, called specifically by Jesus as an apostle. So Peter has been given authority to proclaim the truth of Jesus in a special way, and he's setting that up right here. Now, I will say this, though. Uh, there is this distinction in authority and leadership, but Peter does set a very good example for church leaders here in this verse 1, in that a church leader should be someone who is a submissive servant of Christ, vested with the authority Christ has given them. So those who serve in church leadership serve because Christ has called them. Yes. In that calling, they've, they've been vested with a certain amount of authority. So they should serve in a humble submission to Christ in exercising that authority. That's the example Peter gives for church leadership here. Then Peter, after establishing who he is, after establishing his position and his calling, he draws people's attention really to the salvation and the privilege of salvation that we have. He says, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So he, he begins to now shift to draw his reader's attention to remind them of what they really have. The, the, the magnitude of what they have obtained. He says they have obtained like precious faith. Now, to obtain there is not something that, that we have done to acquire. It doesn't mean you've worked and you've earned so you've attained. It, it really means you have received as a gift. You have been endowed with. It has been handed to you. That's what that word really means there. That's what that phrase refers to, to obtain. And so Peter reminds his readers, God has granted you salvation through faith and all the privileges that that brings. In unfolding that, what you see is this. You have received like precious faith. Now, that phrase is a, is a phrase that's worth honing in on. Like precious faith. There are passages in the Bible that speak about the faith. Contend for the faith. Mm -hmm. um, 
Jude, for example, says that. Yes. Contend for the faith. The faith. The tenets of the faith. The practices of the faith. The kingdom. This is faith. A faith. The faith you have to have to have faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's what it's referenced here. So what we see here is this. God calls us to faith. God enables us to express faith because he imparts to us the faith we need to have in him. It's, it just kind of blow your mind. And then from that come the privileges of faith. And so we're called to have a saving knowledge of Christ. We're called to have faith. God enables us to express that faith. It all comes from God. Apart from God, there's not one human being who would ever come to know Jesus as their Savior because none of us would have a desire to. Mm. None of us would understand we needed to. That's right. If God did not draw us to faith, enlighten us to faith, and allow us to have faith. That's right. This is the complete work of God. Well, he measures out the faith. He measures out the faith. That's right. Yeah. And so faith then becomes a gift of God. Our own faith we're expressing ultimately is a gift of God. And this is a like faith, he says. You have attained like precious faith. Like faith. ESV says a faith of equal standing. Yes. That's the best way to describe that phrase. Um, the NASB says faith of the same kind as ours. But the equal standing is really the best way to understand that. All born-again believers, all born-again believers, equal standing when it comes to coming to faith and then experiencing the privileges of faith. You can't have any more power and you can't have any more of Jesus than I have. We all have the mm -hmm. same amount of Jesus. We're all empowered with the same Holy That's Spirit. Right. It's not like you can't do any less than I can do or any more than I can do. That's right. God's empowered us to do these ministries That's right. that he set us over to do. You know? That's right. The calling of God to faith equally provided. The experience of faith equally applied. The privileges of faith equally given. The precious gift of, of God here, these precious, this precious faith, it's equally offered. It's equally applied. I mean, I've had people tell me, well, you have a special relationship with Jesus. And that's, you know, that's flattering and everything, but it's not true. I don't have any more special relationship with Jesus than they do if they place their faith in Jesus. Mm -hmm. You just got to get, you got to put your faith into action. You got to, you know. Well, that's the, that's the thing. Serve. That's the thing. That these precious gifts that, that God gives by his grace, they're equally offered, equally applied. They're equally given to every born-again believer, anyone who will come to, re to repentance and faith in Jesus, we're on equal standing there. Now, that doesn't mean we have the same callings. No. That doesn't mean we have the same spiritual giftedness. But we have equal opportunity to enjoy the grace and the peace of God. We have equal opportunity to encounter His presence. We have equal opportunity. In God's sight, we are equal. He's not playing favorites among us. He's, he's not saying, well... Jimmy gets a special measure that Will doesn't. No. We're equal before him. God doesn't play favorites with us, you know? So uh, this, is why, this is why Galatians chapter 3 tells us 
There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, man nor woman. All are the same in Christ. All are one in Christ. Yeah, I think that's why he tells us to imitate each other's faith. Imitate people of, that mm -hmm. you look at the outcome of their faith and imitate that. Mm -hmm. And you'll go on with it. Go further. Go, you know, more in your walk, you know. Go the extra mile. I think that all that means that, you know, can mm -hmm. be applied to that. That's right. So Peter acknowledges that we have received from God these special privileges, just like he has, on the same level as Peter. That's something to think about there. Mm, yes. Now, once again, not the same level of apostleship, not, maybe not the same giftedness, but the same access to the privileges that come to a born-again believer. That's been given us. And he tells us how we access it or why we can access it, really, he says, obtain like precious faith with us, so just like Peter, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Interesting statement. Yeah, we're going to pull that apart. <laughs> These precious privileges of faith are available by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus became sin for us that we might be made righteous before God. That's what the Bible teaches. So we see a reference here that our sin was imputed to Christ so that his righteousness might be imputed to us. So because of this, a person who has a genuine heart of repentance, a genuine faith, they're credited for righteousness. Their faith is credited to them. You'll, you'll read that phrase more than once throughout the scriptures. Your faith is credited. The faith of Moses was credited. The faith of Abraham was credited. Credited for what? It always say credited for righteousness. Well, what's that faith? about is faith in Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what he will do. Faith in him is credited to us for righteousness. Amen. That is the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account. Mm. It's as if, it's as if my bank account sets on zero, mm. really probably in the negative. <laughs> and I call out to Jimmy having faith that he can take care of it. And then my my, my account is, a, is credited by Jimmy with an overabundance of all resources. Mm. That's the description here. Spiritually bankrupt, we are in this world, completely unrighteous, yet through Christ, we are credited with his righteousness. Amen. We're declared righteous before God because of Jesus. This makes us acceptable before God. This is how we can know God and interact with God. Couldn't do it any other way. That's right. That's right. And so we have this standing with God because of the work of Christ. But Jimmy, it describes, he, he gives a very pointed statement yeah. about who Jesus is, doesn't he? <laughs> yes, this is it right here. This is my favorite statement right here. Here we go. I'm going to read the verse. <laughs> Those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior. That's right. Jesus Christ. So who's he identifying Jesus as here? God. He calls Jesus God. Because he doesn't say our God and our Savior, That's Jesus right. Christ. He says our God right. and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a very specific statement right there. It's a, it's a deliberate statement. Yes. It's a very deliberate statement. Peter identifies Jesus as God. Mm. He's, he doesn't want any qualms about it. He did the same thing when he preached there. If you go back to the beginning of the book of Acts yes. and you see the sermons Peter preached, he did the same thing there. He didn't want any mistake. Every, he wanted everyone to know who Jesus is. Well, he answered the Lord right. Who do, you, who do people say that I am? Well, he said, you're the son of the living God. That's right. You're our God. <laughs> That's right. 
<laughs> and Peter's going to tie into this later on when he talks about um, his divine power. Well, who's his? Who's that referring to? It's referring to Jesus. He's referring back to Jesus. So here in just a minute, when we get to that verse and we read, as his divine power has given, he's referring back to Jesus. So even there, he's speaking of his divine nature. Well, who's divine? God is. And so Peter makes it very clear. Jesus is God. Now, I know that confuses some people because, well, Jesus is the son of God. Okay, yes. <laughs> Our triune God, a singular God who is understood or manifested, uh-huh. it fulfills his purpose as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Uh-huh. I don't know how it works. I don't know how he can do that. I, I just know that's how God describes himself. The only way I've ever been able to explain it in my head is be like, you know, I'm somebody's child. I'm also the father of, of child. I'm also somebody's friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you, that, that's the only way I can that's tell right. you. I'm all these things, but I'm still Jimmy. Right. I'm still right. that person. Mm-hmm. I'm not three different people. I'm still these people, but I'm all these things. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think that's what God. Yeah. I mean, if we're made in his image, that's yeah. what it is. We have all these abilities and characteristics and well, everything, but we're still the person we, that's who we right. are. That's right. I mean, being made in God's image is a, is a, good, a good reference to that. You know, uh, we, we have a physical existence, a spiritual assistant, uh, yes. existence, an emotional, mental existence. We're still a singular person with, with a tri, yes. triune I mean, type existence. So, I mean, the soul in you and the spirit in you is different. I mean, the soul is your soul that God gives you when you're born. The Spirit's who He gives you when you receive Him in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So you don't even have three parts in you until you receive Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's your third part. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so Peter establishes very clearly who Jesus is. He uh, greets his readers with an expression here. Um, this is verse 2. This is the same greeting he used in First Peter. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, in 1 Peter, he developed that and went very in-depth in, into a living hope we have through Christ Jesus. But now look at how he develops the grace and peace. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So now he begins his greeting, uh, his his desire is what this is. Here's who I am. Let me remind you what you have. And let me tell you what I want for you. What I want for you is grace and peace to be multiplied. I want you to have this grace and peace that you've experienced from God to be multiplied in your life. Of course, grace refers to that unmerited favor of God that he shows us continually. He pours out upon his children. Peace here refers I think to the peace with God that comes through Jesus that leads to the peace from God that we have access to because we're right with God. And so you, you have this outworking of grace in peace. So grace and peace, that's what I want for you. Grace and peace to be multiplied. I want you to have this abounding supply of God's favor and his provision in your life. But he explains how that's going to happen. We're not just going to pray that it'll happen. We're not just going to hope it'll happen. He says, I want grace and peace to be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So for grace and peace to be imparted and then to abound, it involves the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That word knowledge there is a very specific word in Greek. 
It's not the word generally used. It just means to have an understanding. It's not just, well, I have knowledge of the church's address. I know where it's at. It's, I have knowledge of what the floor plan is because I've been in it and I know where every light switch is and I interact with it. I, I know the people of the church and mm-hmm. I know who attends and I know their names. It's not a basic knowledge, it's an intimate knowledge. Amen. That's what the Greek word for knowledge is there. It's this deep knowledge. It's a thorough knowledge. It's knowledge that goes to the extent that you have this full understanding This intimate interaction, that's what that word means there. So how can grace and peace be multiplied in my life when I have a full, deep, intimate knowledge of God? So where does that happen? Well, obviously it begins with salvation. We know that. But even salvation depends on that kind of knowledge. Jesus even spoke about the difference in knowing something and truly trusting and believing. A lot of people have a, have a knowledge of God, have a knowledge of Jesus. Yeah. I think a lot of people have a, a knowledge that this is the truth of Jesus. But to have a knowledge that this is the truth and to intimately interact through faith is different. Well, I always say they have a knowledge, but they never receive a wisdom. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, knowledge without wisdom is totally worthless. And well, especially when it comes to... Your relationship with the That's Lord. That's right. That's exactly right. I'm reminded of something. I'm not going to say it out loud, but one of, one of our esteemed gentlemen here has explained knowledge and wisdom to me about sticking your finger in your nose and doing something, but I won't go any further than that. The thing is, Peter says, I want you to have grace and peace and abound in it. But what it's going to require is this in-depth, deeper, intimate knowledge. That's where you'll see the multiplication of the grace and peace. So salvation comes when I move to that through faith, but grace and peace abound when I continue the pursuit of this intimate knowledge of Christ. When I seek to know him and know his power, when I seek to know him in fellowship continually, when I seek to know him so he can conform me to his image, when I have a, a desire to go deeper and follow him faithfully to learn more and more. That's the word knowledge here. So grace and peace is multiplied as we acquire this knowledge, pursue this knowledge, work for this knowledge. But how does the grace and peace apply to our lives as we pursue this? Well, he says, verse 3, this comes as we have this knowledge as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness to the knowledge of him who called us. So we see that this grace and peace is multiplied through knowledge and it happens because his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So it goes back to God's power within us. As I pursue this intimate knowledge of Christ, the power of God within me brings access to grace and peace on these higher levels. In fact, the way it's phrased reveals here that God has already given all we need. So when we read this statement, as his divine power has given, that is something that has been completed and it continues on. God has already given everything we need to be fully 
effectively successful in this Christian walk. He's already given. When I struggle in my spiritual walk, it's not because I lack the spiritual resources. God has already given the resources. That's right. The difference may be I'm not accessing the resources. Mm -hmm. I'm not utilizing the resources. It might be I've done something to hinder the resources. But spiritual sufficiency, the equipping for living in godliness, it has been granted. His divine power has given. And it's, it's worth pointing out that it is by His power. Once again, this is not in our ability. To live in godliness, it doesn't come through our ability. It's the ability of God in us. And that's where you see Paul often referencing, it is the power of God in me. Yeah. It is the work of the Spirit through me. Yeah. Things of that nature. For when I'm weak, I'm strong. That's right. That's yeah. right. So God's divine power applied in our lives gives us what we need to sufficiently live in godliness. Uh, Ephesians 3.20 says, it is the power of God that works in us. Amen. The power of God that works in us. Works in us for what? For life and godliness. To live this Christian life in a godly fashion. To live in righteousness. To pursue holiness. So God's divine power is at work in us. And it's worth remembering that it is that divine power that raised Christ from the dead. Yeah. <laughs> That's the divine power that works in us. Amen. So how can I feel like God hasn't given me what I need to live the life he's calling me to live if the power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that's at work in me? Some pretty powerful stuff. That is. <laughs> His divine power has given, already done. It's there. Has given what we need for life and godliness. So, we each, as a child of God, have the capability of living lives of godliness. Living lives of righteousness. Living lives that are pleasing and honoring to Jesus because we're empowered by him to serve him. Amen. So he, he purchases our salvation. He calls us into the family of God. He assigns us spiritual gifts. He gives us a calling. He calls us to serve him. And through all that, he empowers us to do what he wants us to do. He doesn't even let us rest in our own ability really flounder in our own inability. He says, I'll give you my divine power so that you have all things you need for life and godliness. You can live a life in my will, serving me as I call you. You can live a life that is pleasing and honoring to me because I have empowered you. So you're empowered to live for Christ if you know Christ. Now, again, it goes back to a very specific thing. Here we go. As his divine power has given us all things that pertain uh, to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us Amen. by glory and virtue. So this divine power applied to our lives is tied to this intimate and deep knowledge of Christ. So now I begin to start seeing a little bit. Wait a minute. God has already given me what I need to live the life he's calling me to live but for me to access the power that I need to live the life he's calling me to live, I need this intimate and deep knowledge of Christ. That's right. Without that, I'm not tapping into the power. That's right. So when I feel like I'm insufficient 
in what I'm doing to do what God has called me to do. It very well could be I don't have the knowledge I need to have That's right. with Christ. And remember, that knowledge isn't just the smarts of the Bible. It's the fellowship. It's the intimate pursuit. It's the growing deep in sanctification and being conformed to the image of Christ. In that knowledge of Christ, I experience the divine power that enables me to live the Christian life in godliness. You have to let Christ teach and ready your heart for the service he's called you to do. You know, mm -hmm. I think that's all a part of that intimate relationship mm -hmm. just getting along with him and learning what what your he wants you to do not just like i got an idea right but really what do you want me to do mm -hmm. lord mm -hmm. and then Absolutely. do it you know because peter wrote this in the <laughs> in the midst of going to prison mm -hmm. he maybe even in the prison yeah. you know and, and or maybe even on the run you know if we're, mm -hmm. knowing that they're searching him out and stuff all that i don't know what was going on around him but some pretty deep stuff where you yeah. have to write this that's right that's right. But to take time to write it shows his servant, servant heart and mm -hmm. the humbleness to care for others and to care for God's word and to make sure it's known. That's right. That's right. Accurately, too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So we, we, we have all the things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. That's the knowledge of Christ who called us by glory and virtue. That virtue there refers to an excellence, a holiness. So... We're, we're called by Christ. Ultimately, it begins with salvation. We're called by Christ to salvation. Uh, the illumination of our need for salvation happens in the light of His glory and virtue, His glory and His excellence, His glory and His holiness. To understand the glory and the holiness of God is, is to understand our insufficiencies before God and our need for Him, the need to have faith in Him. The glory and holiness of Christ then reveals my need for a personal relationship with Him and my need to walk continually in fellowship with Him. So I need to respond to His glory and excellence. Verse 4 continues. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So Christ has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's given that to us by his divine power. And not only that, but he has given us access to exceedingly great and precious promises. So we have divine promises from God. They're revealed in his word and he has granted us access to them as his children. Now the first great and exceeding, exceedingly precious promise is that promise of forgiveness and redemption. Once again, it always starts with salvation. But then God's word is full of promises that he's made to his children. Promises that are made available to us through faith, made available to us because of the divine power, made available to us as we pursue Christ. Because how do I even know the promises if I don't go deep with him to That's know right. those deep promises? Amen. By these promises, the Bible says here, we become partakers of the divine nature. This divine nature, that's the life of God. The life of God that is granted to us the life of God given to the redeemed 
It's the life that is placed within us, the calling that he's given us. It's living in eternal life, here and now. Because, you know, eternal life isn't something that's given us and then we wait for. You come to faith in, in God and you are given eternal life. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that gift of eternal life begins when I bow with a repentant heart, calling out in faith to Christ. I don't wait for my eternal life. I live in my eternal life. That's why the born-again believer can live differently in the midst of this world than people who don't know Jesus because we are living in our eternal life. We're living with the presence of God, the Spirit. We're living with the promises of God. We're living with this divine power. We're living with all that's needed for life and godliness, and we're living in it now. We're living it out now. We should be displaying the nature of Christ, this divine nature. The divine nature of Christ should be witnessed within us because we're living out this eternal life we've been granted. So, how can this divine nature become more prominent? Well, the same way everything else has happened. Through this knowledge of Christ. The deeper my knowledge of Christ, the more empowered to live in Christ, the more empowered to abide in the promises of Christ, the more the nature of Christ is seen in me, witnessed in me. And Peter says here, and in these things, we have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Mm. We have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The corruption of the world started in Genesis 3. That's right. The corruption of the world through lust, that's sin, right? The effects of sin. It's the sin nature that has entered the world, that indwells people. It's another one of them interesting statements. Corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Mm -hmm. Well, the people always want to blame God for all the corruption and, and stuff like that. It's God's fault. Well, no, we see here that it's sinful desire. That's right. Is what's corrupted the world. And mm -hmm. it's not God never did that. Well, that, that word corruption there is, is, it's the word that just means to rot. That's right. To rot. It's you, you know, you left your food out in the car over the weekend and you go back and it's starting to spoil and stink. That's corruption. The world is spiritually corrupt. It's, it, it, it's spiritually spoiled. It's rotting. And why? Because of, this says lust here, but it's sinful desire. Sinful desire. Sinful desire of man has brought spiritual corruption upon the world. And see, we can't blame God for that because God can't sin. It's impossible for him to mm -hmm. sin. He doesn't do it. That's right. That's right. But we, through faith in Christ, have escaped these things. Ultimately, we've escaped the power of the sin nature. Mm. The sin nature does not dominate us any longer because we have this divine nature mentioned here. The nature of Christ imparted to us that we walk in, we live in, we grow in. The sin nature doesn't dominate me, or it shouldn't anyway, mm. because it has no authority anymore. Now, am I still tied to the flesh? Well, sure. No, no way around that. It's a war. But do I have to bow to it? Do I, have to, do I have to concede to it? Do I have to give it? No, I don't. Because I've been delivered from its rule and domination because I've been imparted with a new nature. That's right. 
Your flesh wars against that new nature. That's right. It's a spiritual warfare. That's the spiritual warfare. Mm -hmm. It's Roman yourself. Seven. <laughs> yeah. Romans 7 speaks to that. Yes, yes. The, the, the battle that rages there. So the reality is we are called to servitude through Christ and his redemptive work to live out service to him and the calling he's given us. And he has given us everything we need, the divine power to fulfill that call and to live in service to him, to live a life of, of godliness, to live a life living out his character. And we don't live in dominion to him anymore. Uh -oh. sin anymore. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. No one's hearing me. Oh, no. <laughs> when the mic quits working, no one tell Kyle I dropped it. <laughs> I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. Tell Kyle I dropped the mic. He'll fire me. <laughs> all right. So all I, what I was saying there was simply this. This whole introduction, these first four verses, Peter simply lays out, number one, who, here's who I am, but in a greater sense, who we are. Because of faith in Christ, he, is, he has called us into his kingdom to serve his kingdom. He's gifted us in some way, called us in some way to exercise giftedness in servitude to him. And in doing that, he has given us this divine power to live the way he's called us to live, to accomplish what he calls us to accomplish. He's granted us access to precious and uh, uh, divine promises. And he's imparted his nature to us. Amen. A new nature. We have a new nature through Christ so that we don't experience the corruption that dominates the world. <laughs> and when this world sees its final judgment over the corruption of sin, we will not experience that judgment because of Christ. But those who have failed to put their faith in Christ, along with the corrupt world, will stand in judgment. That's right. Before God. So tonight is the night to simply ask yourself, who am I in Christ? The way Peter started this out. Who am I in Christ? What's my position in Jesus? Mm. Am I alienated from him, corrupt in sin, or do I belong to him through faith? Mm. And if I belong to him in, through faith, what has he called me to do? And am I living in the power he's given me to live that calling out? Amen. So that's where I'd like to leave everyone tonight. What's Amen. your position in Christ? What is that position? Jimmy, I appreciate you being here tonight. I is doing a this study. I needed it. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to ask all of our people who tune in and watch, you be praying for Jimmy and Brooke, the rest of their family. And uh, Pray for this church. Yeah. We're all going through it. Yeah. yeah. The church is in a, kind of in a state of shock right now. Yeah. So, um, But we're going to sign off. We're going to go to prayer time with the church family here. I appreciate you watching and listening to the podcast. Um, I encourage you to keep that up, share it with people, and uh, we'll be back hopefully next week, Lord willing, and Amen. pick back up with uh, pick up a chapter uh, verse five, chapter one, verse five. Yes, so. sir. All right. Well, we're gonna sign off. You have been listening to Along the Narrow Way, hosted by Pastor Will Russell and co-hosted by Jimmy Miller. If you haven't done so, subscribe to the podcast so you can get updates on new episodes. Thank you for listening, and remember to stay faithful to walk along the narrow way with Jesus.